Hugo Bown-Anderson here, your friendly neighborhood podcast host. Today, it is with great pleasure that I'm speaking with James J.D. Long. J.D. is an agricultural economist, quant and stochastic modeler, in addition to being an avid user of Python, R, AWS, and colorful metaphors. He is also the co-author of the R cookbook and a born raconteur. This is part one of a two-part conversation in which we delve into decision-making under uncertainty and how we can use our knowledge of risk, uncertainty, probabilistic thinking, causal inference, and more to help us use data science and machine learning to make better decisions in an uncertain world. Now, why am I speaking with JD about this? Well, because not only is he a wild conversationalist with a real knack for explaining hard-to-grok concepts with illustrative examples and useful stories, but he has worked for many years in reinsurance. Th- that's right, not just insurance, but reinsurance. These are the people who insure the insurers, people. So if anyone can actually tell us about risk and uncertainty in decision-making, it better be him. So in this, part one, we discuss risk uncertainty, probabilistic thinking, and simulation, all with a view towards improving decision-making. And we draw on examples from our personal lives, from the pandemic, from our jobs, the reinsurance space, and the corporate world. In part two, we'll get into the nitty-gritty of decision-making under uncertainty. As JD says, and I paraphrase, you may think you train your models, but your models are really training you. Now, a bit of bookkeeping before we jump in. I'd honestly love to hear from you about what resonates with you, what doesn't, and anybody you'd like to hear me speak with, along with topics you'd like to hear more about. The best way to let me know currently is on Twitter, at Vanishing Data is the podcast handle, and I'm at Hugo Bound. It would be great if you could subscribe to the show on your app of choice, and if you like it, do write us a review on iTunes and or anywhere else. Also, this episode was the first we recorded as a YouTube live stream, so when we occasionally refer to people commenting in the chat, that's what we're on about. We plan to have more such live streams, and you can subscribe to our channel to keep up to date on YouTube. The link's in the show notes. I'm your host, Hugo Bound-Anderson, and welcome to Vanishing Gradients. Further ado, JD, I'd love to get into this. Before jumping into really the, the topic of the day, though, I just love a bit of, bit of background in how you got into data science and all of these types of things, the world we inhabit. Yeah. So like everybody who did this before data science was a thing, I fell in sideways, right? And this is like all the physicists and economists and everybody else who ended up doing data work fumbled into here because they had problems to solve. And my background is as an agricultural economist. And in the late 90s, like the summer job I had between undergrad and grad school was moving a bunch of SAS data from a mainframe to this new Unix machine, this HP Unix machine that we had in the Agricultural Economics Department, University of Kentucky. And that was like my first touch with like data and there were all these job control language scripts over in SAS that were getting stuff off of. I think it was on tape, if I remember, because that was old even at the time. And that was the whole deal is we had to get it off of that. We're going to lose access to machine to read that stuff. So anyway, we migrated data all over. And that started my journey with kind of analytics and understanding data. And like buried in a bunch of that work was like linear regressions, which I had studied as an undergrad and would later go on to study more econometrics course in grad school. But I was fortunate enough to be studying in graduate school under a professor who did his own analytics, which sounds weird. That's like saying somebody does their own typing to us. But at the time, a lot of the professors, even in applied fields like ag economics, had programmers or staff. Also, that this like was a wrote time script. where 
people had typists as well. So people actually had people type for them. We had just gotten out of, so this would have been like late nineties. I started grad school in like 96, 97. I can't remember exactly. I think it would have been late 96. And so nobody had typist at the time, well, the but maths, they did. The math department I was in the early noughties, the professors really? there still had Typists, they were essentially assistants who wrote their LaTeX for them. There were these wonderful, no, we didn't wonderful women who worked part-time as assistants who didn't understand the math. Of, I mean, it was like you know, non-commutative algebraic geometry and stuff like that. But they would, they knew how to type LaTeX. So, sorry, that's a no. A we, we didn't have that, but a lot no. of the professors had people on staff who like wrote the SAS code to implement the equations they wrote out. So they didn't actually like code or do the analytics. And the professor I worked under actually wrote the code. And I saw this thing that has resonated with me for the last 25 years. And that was he could iterate faster because he discovered things and he discovered things he wanted to hypothesize about mm. in playing with the data is what, you know, we would have called it then. Basically, he was like, now it's a shorter feedback loop if I just do all this junk myself. Plus, I discover things that I want to know more about or what causes it. And I felt like the faculty who only did the linear line, I've got this theory, I'm going to have this person who doesn't really understand the theory of the data implement that, and then I'm going to look at the results. They were missing that feedback loop, right? And they mm -hmm. weren't engaged in stuff that we would now call exploratory data analysis and hypothesis creation from exploratory data analysis and that sort of thing. Now. They probably had some, they probably, there were some errors they didn't make because of that, right? So they didn't actually, when you start making hypothesis off of your EDA, you run into some other challenges, but that fast feedback loop was truly effective. And so I observed that and then later was like, oh, I see that how he's so much more productive because he can do this all himself. I want to be that person. And then for the next like rest of my career, and even after grad school, a lot of folks would look at me in organizations. I, I did not go into academia. I got a master's degree and then was out. And they were like, look at me like, what are you? You're not really a, a developer, but you're not really like these other things either. You've got your nose all up in the data and you're writing code. Like what even is this? And like my biggest thankfulness that data science came along years later is I actually had something to kind of call myself, even though I've never had that title in a job. Mm. It was at least it made writing code, but not being a professional developer in the IT part of an organization. It made that legitimate. That was illegitimate activity for a long period of time. I got sideways with a guy once who called me shadow IT, wow. right? Because I was coding outside of IT. You know, my response to him was, well, if you guys would do your job, I wouldn't have to. And, you know, we got a little sideways on that. But really, that's not how it should be. And that's not how my organization I'm in now sees it. We see it very much as a partnership. And once again, it's about fast feedback loops. If we have people in the business able to test things in code, and then we can do what I love, which is pass off to professional developers working code as a do specification document, right? The most rich specification document you can give somebody's working code and mm. say, like, make this robust, add error checking, make it scale. But this is the thing that gives you the right answer. Tremendously powerful, like, booster in an organization, as opposed to there's people over here that understand the business and they don't understand code. There's people over here that understand code and they don't understand the business. Like, if we can just get those smashed together, get some business people in the IT group, get some technical folks in the business group, we can bridge those gaps. I've spent my whole career bridging those gaps, mostly risk-taking organizations. Amazing. And of course, there's kind of a third cog here in a, in a lot of ways, which is there's the code skills, the business or domain expertise, and then there's the kind of mathy or statistic-y yeah, or right. which, simulation stuff, which we'll get to. I just want to say there are several comments already in the chat of people who everything you've just said resonates with. And I just want to, I was going to say double click on, it. I've been working in tech for far too long. So let's God, dive into I will mock you if you say <laughs> yeah. that. I'm just happy you didn't end the call straight away. But <laughs> Mike Smith wrote, so many stats colleagues say, I'm not a programmer, almost as an excuse for having messy code. They are writing code to do stuff and explore data. And I just want to make the point that um, 
writing code is almost an overloaded activity, just like we overload terms like probability, right? You can write code for all types. If you're not writing production grade software, that doesn't mean you're not writing code. If you're writing code in a notebook to do EDA, that's writing code for your scientific purposes as part of the scientific method at that certain point in whatever workflow. So I think Mike's point is incredibly, incredibly well taken. And that's something which very much needs to be recognized. Yeah, and, and he Med- goes on to say, like, like, don't toss a bunch of crap over the wall for IT to fix. And, and that's totally legit. Let me give you an example of what this looks like in healthy, because I feel like in my vague terms and your vague terms, people may be imagining very different things. The proverbial, each one of us holding to a different part of the elephant trying to describe it. What this looks like when it's healthy is I know I'm doing a mock-up maybe I'm implementing an idea in SQL. And we know in our production environment, that's not going to be maybe SQL for that. They're going to implement it using something else. And But it allows them, them being the professional developers, to see exactly what operations need to happen. And then I never toss it over the wall, right? I call it the three-legged race, right? From when we were in school and you take two people or a potato sack race and they each put one leg in the potato yeah. sack and try to run together. They tie them together, yeah. Yeah, that's the way it should work between the technical business people and the IT devs, not Mm. throw it over the wall, y'all fix this. It's we're in this three-legged race together. My part is give you a prototype. Your part is add some robustness to it, but do that with me. Talk to me about it. Ask me the question. You know, we're collaborating together, not here's a bunch of crap that isn't documented. Make it good. That would be awful and totally unreasonable. So you mentioned, and I mentioned you're in, Agricultural economist. I am. OG data scientist or not? (laughs) I tend to say yes, right? My joke is the physicists all get mad. But from, uh, you know, agricultural economics, we were getting recruited outside of ag econ for years. And uh, largely, you know, credit card companies, uh, American Express, that sort of thing, recruiting agricultural economists because we had applied data experience, right? And the Mm. pure economists that came out of the econ department tended to not... They heavy on theory, low on applied mathematics and applied, I'm sorry, applied statistics. And as a result, having that data munging skill, a lot of times within SAS at, at my age would have been with SAS or SPSS or something. We came out able to actually do something with data. And so that's where I do my OG or get my OG data science creds. But I think the physicists have a reasonable claim on that as well. Yeah, I think actuaries do as well. Yeah, I actually absolutely. do though think economists and people working in finance, particularly with the incentives of working in finance, a lot of what we're doing now kind of comes from a lot of the things that were happening there. With physicists though, I actually, hands down, the best applied statisticians I've ever met astronomers on average. Yeah. Because they can't do experiments as well, right? So they're literally like figuring out all the tools they can get, right? I work with two astronomers closely, one of which has a PhD. We have a uh, one of our C-level risk execs has a PhD in physics. These folks are everywhere. They do, they do great work and they're all coming, bringing their applied experience from elsewhere. Awesome. So what are you up to these days? Just to so kind of round days, out your yeah. career and before we jump in. So gosh, for the last 13 plus years, I've worked for a global reinsurance company. And, uh, you know, my joke is I tell my daughter I play piano in a whorehouse because there's some things you just can't explain to a kid. Well, reinsurance <laughs> is one of, those, one of those things, right? Like we insure insurance companies. I think she, mm. that's like the elevator pitch and she's now 15. And so I think she actually just tells people, dad works for a reinsurance company, a reinsurance company insures insurance companies. Now I'm not sure she fully ingests what that means, but what that means is insurance companies often have more risk they're exposed to, for example, things like Hurricane Ian that just came through Florida. A regional company in Florida could get completely wiped out buy a storm like that. So they buy reinsurance to cover their capital above and beyond what they might lose from large events. That's an example of reinsurance. One of the phrases we use in the industry to refer to reinsurance is contingent capital. Mm-hmm. It's capital contingent upon some vi- uh, set of events happening. So they've got enough capital to run under normal conditions. But if something out in the tail of the distribution happens, they need more capital. And so we do that. So I spend a lot of time modeling risk, thinking about risk. I work in a, in a corporate group. Uh, and then I also, for a small part of the year, put my underwriting hat on and go work on the analytics of our agriculture portfolio. 
And cool. because I've been close to agriculture for years, so they let me do that as a side hustle within the organization. But that's not most of my job. Most of my job is far away from agricultural economics. Great. So let me, I want to jump into kind of thinking about risk, uncertainty, probability, all of these things in a second. But let me kind of paraphrase in my words what reinsurance mm-hmm. would be then. Insurance yeah. is about pooling risk. We've got organizations that help people pool risk. Uh, Mike Smith says, yeah, JD, but what do you actually do all day? Brilliant. Yeah, um, exactly. so, so pooling risk. Now, for any insurer, when they're pooling a bunch of risk, that may be correlated in some ways. So if the risk they're pooling all goes in one direction, then they need to have some, I suppose, safety net of some sort. So then a bunch of different insurers who are all pooling their own risk, then pull risk together. And it's the reinsurers who help them do that. Yes. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to spread risk around the globe. And if we had populated other planets, we'd spread it there too. But we're trying to spread this risk out. For example, it's pretty obvious if you think about it for very long, Japan has a very certain type of property risk, right? Mm -hmm. It's earthquake tsunami risk. And in Kansas, there is none of that. And they have a different type of risk, right? That's completely unrelated. It's completely uncorrelated. The severe convective storm that blows Dorothy to Oz. Mm -hmm. You would think that the risk in Kansas has some admirable properties if you put it in a portfolio with the risk in Japan because they aren't related. You aren't necessarily going to have one problem when you have the other. You could just by coincidence because of pure misfortune, but they aren't correlated. They aren't going to happen at the same time by definition. So what reinsurers do, for example, is make global portfolios and pull those risks together. So that's the sort of thing we're thinking about at the global macro level. Fantastic. And I love that you, you know, you reference a lot of real things there, but then mention something that's real that takes Dorothy to Oz, which is the most real. In, in, in <laughs> Absolutely. Fact. I think it's important to define a few terms because everything's overloaded and things are confusing generally. We've kind of talking around risk, uncertainty, probability. What do all these things mean? All right. So the first distinction I like to make is risk versus uncertainty. And I like to lean on Frank Knight from the Chicago School of Economics for his definition of risk versus uncertainty. His definition of risk is an outcome that is unknown, but you know the distribution from which it will be drawn. So for example, if we're flipping a fair coin, we don't know the outcome, but we believe it's a fair coin. So we believe the distribution is 50% heads, 50% tails. So that is risk. It's definable. We I like to think, let's add a little more dimensionality to it. Let's think of it as something a little more continuous. We might have and this isn't truly continuous, but it's more continuous than two options. You know, you might have an urn with even number of three different color marbles in there. So you know when you draw out, once again, what distribution you have. Contrast that to uncertainty, which is we don't know the outcome of this and we don't even know what the distribution is or what's driving the range of outcomes. It's an unknown underlying process. And sometimes we know how much of that there is, and sometimes we don't know how much of that uncertainty there is. But we may look at a certain unknown outcome, and we may say, okay, that's really just whether or not the wind blows in Florida, whether this insurance company will lose money, right? Because we know, we believe that they're running a reasonably sound business, and the only factor is, does a hurricane hit Florida for a certain outcome to happen. Or we may look at something like startups in Silicon Valley, where it's like we can't even define all of the things that might go wrong or all the things that would be needed in order for them to have a successful or unsuccessful outcome. One is a situation full of risk. The other is a situation that's largely uncertainty. And maybe that's a a contrast between the two. So you ask a third, though. You said risk, uncertainty, yeah, and, and something and probability, else. but I just wanted uh, maybe re- just reflect for clarity a- yeah. an example. Let's say we had a global pandemic and we knew the prevalence in a certain region and right. we picked someone at random. We knew 20% of people had it at a certain point in time. Then that is thinking about 
risk, right? Because we know what proportion of people have it, right? Assuming um, we know that, right? Exactly. There's no sampling error, all this yep. other garbage, right? E yep. Exactly. But if we don't know that, so that would be risk. If we don't know that, that's uncertainty. Right. If we don't know, and this is... This is one of the things people like me start watched a lot. And, and I know you thinking this way because of what you wrote during the pandemic that we all mm. went through is that at the very beginning, huge amounts of uncertainty because we didn't know what the underlying transmission rate, we didn't know what the fatality rate. I mean, we had some pieces of information, but we knew there were big things we didn't know mm. and not to get all Donald Rumsfeld, but these were like known unknowns. Yes. We knew we didn't know them. And so lots of us who think in terms of risk and uncertainty were extra cautious because that could have broken very differently as we got more information. Now we got more information and then we got a head fake after post <laughs> post uh, vaccine, right? Where we thought this thing was done and then, oh shit, yeah, I guess epidemiologists had been telling us this would happen and things changed, right? So, but we started with huge amounts of uncertainty. And then as we got more and more information, we got more defined risk and then a component still of uncertainty. And so what we were talking about is really the conversion of uncertainty into risk. So it's quantified. We don't know the outcome individually, but we know it's more quantified and then squeezing down the uncertainty to a smaller amount. Yep. Great. So my next question was around just probability. But I want to preface that by saying we're talking about a technical definition of the term uncertainty. Once again, an overloaded term. It is Absolutely. a general term, which means being uncertain, not knowing things. And one way I like to think about probabilistic thinking is as a way of dealing with uncertainty. So when you're uncertain about things that will happen in the future, we developed a cognitive tool, a psychotechnology, if you will, called probabilistic thinking and probability distributions and that type of stuff to help us deal with uncertainty. Yeah, we're going to quickly delve into philosophy, and I'm not a philosopher. I like to hang out with them. They're neat people, but my language is probably too loose and too applied, and Great. honestly, too applied to my specific field to be a very good general philosophical yeah. thinker. Well, I'd love to know specifically how it applies to your work, because that bridging those mm -hmm. scales, I think, is incredibly important. Yeah. So how does does probability and risk taking apply to the world of insurance and reinsurance? Is that what mm, yeah. is that what you're sort of thinking? Absolutely. Yeah. So so in in the reinsurance world, lots uh the, the business comes in usually as very different than insurance. Insurance is like a policy, an individual can shop for insurance. Can I tell a little story here about Flo? Do you know who Flo Absolutely. is from Progressive? You lived in the U.S. for a while. So do you know mm -hmm. Flo, the character from Progressive Insurance commercials? I do not know. Okay, so she's like this, you know, um, dark haired, red lipstick, and she's like the salesperson or the like clerk. And, and there's... Progressive Insurance has this neat model where you can say, oh, you go to their website and they will show you competitors' prices and then they'll show you their prices, right? And they pitch this as like a sales model. I don't trade with Progressive in my day job or any other. Mm -hmm. I've never had their insurance. I got no relationship with them. This is just how a risk person looks at that. Okay, if you were to go to that website and Progressive was the highest cost insurance on that matrix they show you, what does that tell you? That tells me they don't want my business. Yeah, That's not Flo doing me a solid, right? That's Flo saying no. Yep. And they are redirecting me away from their risk pool and into other risk pools. And this is what insurance companies are doing with the individual level, which interestingly enough, I was speaking about this once and I wanted a screenshot of this. And so I like went to Progressive website. They wouldn't show me comparative pricing. Why is wow. that? I'm a 50-year-old male with a perfectly clean driving record in a relatively high income bracket. They want my business so bad. I'm just like Mr. No Wreck, right? Yep. Like I'm the type of person who has very few, and, and that's true. I've not made a auto insurance claim in 25 years or something, yeah. right? And they can kind of figure that out. So they didn't even show me comparative pricing with anybody else. Mm. And that's them saying, yes, please come do insurance with us. Well, on the reinsurance level, it's different than that. We aren't looking at individual policies. We get entire companies with large portfolios of insured individuals in it. 
And they're looking for, they being the insurance companies, are looking for a structure to reinsure that, right? And and mm-hmm. common structure would be an excess of loss where it's like, okay, if this pool of risk has more than $100 million of loss, we want you all to pick up the next $50 million. So that would be a 50x100 is what we would call that in the vernacular, a 50x100 excess of loss policy. So we got to figure out some way to model that. Well, what if there has never been an event in history that would have caused their portfolio $100 million of losses? What do we do then? Does that mean that there can't be an event in the future? So we should just give them the reinsurance for free? Mm. Like surely not, right? This feels like the the black swan Absolutely. problem of just because you haven't seen a black swan doesn't mean one can't exist. And then you come well, to Western Australia. Exactly. And they're everywhere. That's the yep. only type you had, from what I understand. So what happened in the late 1990s is a more engineering approach of modeling risk on this would be like property risk came to be and this modeling of risk i say it's engineering approach and that is as opposed to an actuarial approach which was well established historically but is usually based on historical data well when you're trying to price an instrument for which there is no historic data that says a loss can occur How do you do that? Well, for that, you need to look at something like historic catalog of uh, hurricanes and then do something like, say, could they have gone a slightly different path? If they had gone a slightly different path, what would have been the impact on this group of policies that I'm looking Mm. at? And that was the advent of what my industry calls catastrophe modeling or cat modeling, quite a disappointment for people who are very fond of felines when they come to our industry and they think there's going to be gratuitous amounts of cat modeling. (laughs) Unfortunately, it's catastrophe modeling. And in the process or the process of catastrophe modeling is to say is to create a stochastic catalog. So a historic bunch, not historic, sorry, a, a bunch of Storms that haven't happened but could happen. So I'm kind of focusing here on Southeast Hurricane in the U.S., Mm -hmm. so Gulf of Mexico. And you might, and there are companies that will sell potential catalogs of what they think 10,000 hypothetical years could look like. There's a whole bunch of mediocre years in there, a few good years and a few bad years. And so you take a book of business, a book of policies, and you run them against that model and say, what's the impact on this portfolio? And you begin to say, oh, even though we haven't seen it in actual you know, 50 years of history, we haven't seen this portfolio take 100 million in loss. We find when we run it through this catalog that there's a 10% chance that it'll take you know, meaningful losses and we can actually quantify what those losses are. And then we start putting more information in. So, well, if we know what type of roofs these houses are or what they're built out of, then we can more accurately simulate the damage of these different storms across this portfolio of business and better understand the risk. So a whole bunch of the catastrophe modeling at the reinsurance level is basically taking portfolios of insurance policies and physical properties, running them through against against historic catalogs and looking at what the impact is on that portfolio. And that's kind of how pricing and risk assessment is done for reinsurance. Fantastic. And I just want to say the intersection of catastrophe modeling and actual cat modeling is incredibly small, but at Taronga Zoo in Sydney a couple of weeks yeah. ago, five lions escaped. So I feel like that is, that you know, is- we've recently, and it actually looks like they were like digging around overnight. I don't know whether they had a plan, but like at least the mainstream media has been, did they, did they plan this? And, you know, so there's a lot, there's a lot of play there. I, I would love to, Mike Smith has a great question around communication of model outcomes predictions to decision makers. I want to get that mm-hmm. to that in a second when we really get into decision making. So just letting you know, Mike, I'm very excited about uh, about getting there. But before that, we've been talking around probability, probabilistic thinking and simulation. And what are the, this is tough. What's the role of simulation? What's the role of probabilistic thinking? I'll set the seed of this random conversation generator by saying, if we're talking about probabilistic thinking, why can't we just think about point estimates like means? Where do we fall? What are the failure modes there? And then why simulate and why think probabilistically? 
Okay. I love where you're going with this. I also love that Christina is up here in the chat mentioning John von Neumann and Monte Carlo, right? Yeah. What I just described is a type of Monte Carlo simulation. Mm -hmm. I did not use that term. I was trying to, some of my stumbling over my words is my trying to fight back my urge, 25 years of jargon, right? And trying to explain what we do in a way that can be ingestible for anyone who might watch your this video or listen to your podcast. Yeah. But yes, this is Monte Carlo simulation. Absolutely. And so why not use means, right? And I have told this story to some folks and it, it bears repeating or is worth repeating that, you know, I tend to think about the sophistication of a model by how many moments of the distribution it includes. And I'll explain why I do that in a minute, but just quick review. Like the first moment is the median. The second moment is the standard deviation. That's the dispersion around that mean. Third moment is skew, and fourth moment is kurtosis. And we may not make it to kurtosis in this conversation, although I have thoughts. So if we just think about like the difference two distributions, let's say we're looking at two different portfolios of insurance and they have the same mean, but one has really big tails in both directions. So sometimes it has no losses at all, but sometimes it has really big losses. And the other distribution always has relatively close to the mean losses. They're having the same mean. But one is clearly very different if you're thinking about my previous structure I described about a 50x100, right? One of them may have the one with the longer tails is going to have a lot higher probability of having a or potentially have a higher probability of having a $100 million loss than the one that's always crouched around the mean, imagining the mean as something like, you know, 50 million or 75 million, right? That one that's mm -hmm. really tight around the mean isn't going to hit that layer. So when you start thinking about things that are away from the mean, you've got to understand the shape of that distribution, or you don't understand anything about what is the possibility, the probability, the numerical probability of having losses out here away from the mean? And you'd have no way of distinguishing between those two potential deals in you know, reinsurance land. They would kind of look the same, but you add that second measurement, which is the second moment of dispersion. And actually in this case, more importantly, the third moment, because these distributions are not symmetrical. Mm. The best you can do is no losses. And by the way, most insurance companies for property have very small losses most of the time. So their loss distribution is all right tail. Most of the time they're running very low losses. And then occasionally they have these blowout events like a hurricane blows through, right? And those cause huge losses, but it's only once every 20 years or once every 10 years, right? So And so they're way out here, highly improbable, but highly catastrophic. So low probability, high severity. And contrast that to like your standard auto policy. Uh, if you look at the losses for automobile companies, they're very narrow. They're very tight of uh, the second moment, very low standard deviation. They run plus or minus one or two percentage points on loss ratio. So okay. loss ratio is ratio between premium paid and losses. They're mm -hmm. super stable. Meanwhile, homeowners runs like almost zero and then it runs, you know, a 500 or something, right? It's just one extreme or the other. So those second and third moment matter tremendously when you start talking about things that are farther from the mean and farther out in the tail. Now, did that begin to answer the question you asked me? Absolutely. And we can delve into further moments, high moments, or into the role of simulation and computation in thinking through these. I'll let you... I got completely distracted by a very good question that was asked in the chat. Can I just like totally Definitely. derail you and go into yeah. that? Yeah. So our mystification asks, what do we do about when we don't have a, a catalog of catastrophes to estimate from? So let's back up and ask the question of why for something like hurricane, can we do a catalog of possible outcomes? Let's start with that. So the reason we one can do that catalog, and there are companies that specialize in this, like AIR and RMS, are companies that specialize in making these catalogs. And then like the company I work for has an independent view of the risk. And I'm going to explain why in a minute. But if we think about why can they do that? Because, well, the reason they can do that for Hurricane is hurricanes are a bit of a mechanical event. At some point, they're so big, they scrape against the atmosphere. 
and can't grow anymore. Now, what they can do is they can speed up. And that's one of the concerns with global warming speed up in terms of more of them happen in a season in a season because there's more heat uh, around the equator and we can pump mm -hmm. more of these out. But a few years ago, we had five typhoons. That's what we call a hurricane in the, in your part of the world. Here you go. So we had mm -hmm. five of them active at once. It looked like a conveyor belt right into Southeast Asia. And there is less distance between Africa and the U.S. to make a conveyor belt like that. The Pacific gets, is a little bit longer stretched out, but we can get some number of these, but it's a bit of a mechanical event. And so while there is some uncertainty around how many we, of those we might produce in, in because of changes like global warming, it's a little bit constrained by physics. And so we can say, okay, because we understand the global temperature conditions and the cycles, we think this is a reasonable estimate of the risk, a little bit of uncertainty. Now, what mystification asks is something about new diseases due to climate change and pandemics. And that is a great question because now this is really back to our previous discussion of risk versus uncertainty. Now we're in uncertainty land. And what a lot of companies do and makes a lot of sense is, is to manage that risk, not on a probabilistic basis, but on what's called an exposure basis. So managing on an exposure basis, say, I will only take so much of this class of business or class of risk at any price because I'm not confident I can really model it. So, but I can model how much I am exposed to. So how mm. much exposure to that line of business I had. This is what happened after September 11th, 2001 in the US. The willingness to buy terrorism insurance went up considerably by lots of companies and entities. No one knew how to model it because the question everybody's asking is, did we mismodel this? Is this really quite likely and we thought it was very rare are there going to be follow-up attacks there was so much uncertainty and i use mm. uncertainty specifically not risk so much uncertainty of what's going on and the way a lot of companies handled that is they said we'll write x dollars x million dollars worth of this class of business and we want x to be small enough that it won't put us out of business if we do have an event because we're not confident we can model it and that's often what is done with lines of business that companies aren't sure they know how to model. And as the risk portion grows and we company thinks they know what that risk is and the uncertainty piece shrinks, the risk appetite typically changes as a result of that. The company says, okay, I'm comfortable with this class pricing it based on the risk as opposed to pricing it based on uncertainty, which is usually a higher price. So anyway, that's how industries like ours tend to weigh the class that we can model by risk versus a class that we don't feel like we can model. And we just need to willing to take a little bit, but we also need to protect ourselves, protect our capital from that. So anyway, that was a total tangent based on a good question. Let's go back. You had a but question. It, yeah, it, it oh, wasn't a relevant tangent because it does circle back nicely to our discussion of black swan events right. as well and hedging against such things. And I think Actually, I do want to talk about simulation now. And as we know, the Black Swan event was popularized by Nassim uh, Taleb, who we may get to at some point. Fascinating writer who inspires generative thinking in a lot of us and um, yes. wonderful provocateur as well. And barbell lifter and barbell methods across the board. But of course, he's someone who's interested in the world of simulation as well. So maybe you can tell me a bit about how simulation is important to you as opposed to writing everything in equations and doing integration by parts and whatever we do in that kind of calculus, calculus space. Yeah. So a bunch of what gets done in insurance and reinsurance is solved with simulations simply because it's pragmatic given the way the deals are understood and the computing power available. There is a world where every policy could be defined by an equation and we could combine these equations and it would be impenetrable to most people. And it's just not practical to create that type of closed form solution. So what we end up doing is solving it with simulation. And we say, okay, I can define a simulation for 
this deal or this type of policy or this class of business. And so I do that. And then I can do that for each one of the individual deals or the class of business or some subset. And then we bring those together with, and we'd maybe define them individually. And we bring those together with a, with a correlation matrix of some kind. And we say, okay, now this is our overall position. We've simulated all these lines. We brought them together correlation. Here's our overall position. Now, what I described with property, if you're using a, a ground up model, like the physical simulation model we have in catastrophe reinsurance, you don't need to bring correlation in. Correlation comes from the spatial location of the individual properties mm -hmm. in each program. That gets picked up intrinsically in a model that's defined the way I described that one, right? If two portfolios have a lot of properties in this one area, and that happens to get a lot of hurricanes in the simulation, those two portfolios are going to end up modeling correlated because of the nature of the physical model. So you don't have to worry about correlation there. But if you say, all right, well, we write property and we also write something with non-geographically based risk. So casualty insurance, for example, errors and omissions or directors and officers, those lines of business, their risk isn't defined spatially. So two companies that are close together are not more likely to have a suit against their board of directors just because they're in the same city. So those get modeled differently and they have a relative, one would expect a relatively lower correlation to the property lines mm -hmm. of business, right? And so you can bring all those together in a simulation, assuming some correlation structure. Now, one of the things I mentioned earlier was this idea of an independent view of risk. This Kind of one of the things you and I had tossed around bringing up is when idiosyncratic risk becomes systemic risk. And this is kind of an interesting place for it, because if you think about if all participants in a market used the same model, what happens when that model's wrong? And what happens when that model's wrong, if everyone has the same view on risk, is everybody makes mistake in the same direction at the mm. same time, because they were all guided by the same incorrect map, if you will. So I'm excited to hear about the bridge, which where I think this is going, but is 2007 another example of highly leveraged assets? Yes, every it's a little bit different than everyone using the same catastrophe model. It's like everyone was assuming a certain event could never happen. Yep. And therefore you couldn't have correlation collapse where yeah. everything happens together. That's actually the okay, so just Put it in context here for other folks, the 2007-2008 financial crisis in the U.S., a big piece of that was the residential mortgage market. And a whole deeper discussion of this is in Michael Lewis's book, which is Drawing a Blank. What's it called, Hugo? Is it? Oh, I can't remember. Drawing a quick blank. You Google that while I keep talking. Part of what happened there was there was the assumption that losses or defaults on houses were always idiosyncratic. They just all, they'd randomly fluctuate. They didn't fluctuate together. And as a result, certain tail events where high default rates happens just couldn't happen because that didn't, had never happened. And that was because there was underlying correlation assumptions that were based on relatively short amount of history and didn't take into account big systemic events. Well, we end up having some systemic shocks. Lots of folks started defaulting at the same time and all these default probabilities were wrong. Is that a reasonable exactly. summary? And, yeah, exactly. And of course, it's the big short. Big short. Thank you. Yeah, and it's which, both the movie and the book discuss this in great detail. The book, obviously, in more detail than the movie, but there's a pretty decent bathtub scene in the movie that explains this pretty well. Yeah, I mean, you're referring to Margot Robbie's explanation of the types of assets that we're talking about. And actually, the fact, I mean, there's a great sequence in about how they're kind of designed to be boring and impenetrable. The other as great thing about the movie- houses. Right. Exactly. And, well, and there's a great point in the movie where it really thinks through the incentive systems of everyone involved as well, which I think is fascinating. Of course, Adam McKay's next movie, I think it was his next movie, Vice, had an incredible performance by Steve Carell as Donald Rumsfeld. Ah. And this brings us back to known unknowns and unknown unknowns. And we've been talking around that as well, which I think is, That's is, right. is quite, I made quite, allusion quite to telling. Yeah. yeah. On top of that, going back to the world of simulation, I think this may be an apocryphal tale, but those are usually better than real tales and, and can Absolutely. shed light on how people think about things as well. But supposedly, can never remember which Benulli it was. It was Daniel Benulli or, or Jacob Benulli. 
when, so he came up with the Bernoulli distribution partially to think through infectious disease rates, actually. And so sampling populations. And he was like, okay, let's start flipping coins. And so the apocryphal tale, Alex Birch just said the big short as well. Great. The apocryphal tale is that he would sit there and flip coins and roll dice and this type of stuff and write down all the tables. Like he could do it in closed form, but just to make sure that the closed form reflected the reality. So we can do that using Python and NumPy or R or whatever it is these days. I So to get into decision-making now, which is very, very exciting, I think we're bringing it, really bringing it now to one of the big reasons we're here. I do okay. want to start off by mentioning how it can relate to probabilistic thinking as well. And I actually want to reference what you know is a podcast episode, which I'll share in the chat right now. It's an episode with uh, Jim Savage from Schmidt Futures. Jim is one of the smartest and sharpest thinkers I know, which is one of the reasons I had him on, on the podcast. But his, um, I don't know if it's still the case, I think it is, his um, Twitter handle is Abel Foyp, um, Correct, it still which, is which is an acronym for always be integrating your loss function over your posterior. Now, I mean, this, what on earth does that mean? That's and how purely it impenetrable to, on yeah, the Anything we're talking about, right? And already I'm thinking Bayesian inference. I'm like, ah, but I want to just talk through a brief example, which can help us start thinking about decision-making under uncertainty. So an example Jim gives is a new type of chemotherapy drug where you run an RCT and get a causal estimate of the effect, Right. Now, the intervention will be costly to implement. It will be both expensive and painful. The effect has diminishing returns on, on welfare, reduces probability of death in the next six months, but no long-range effect on mortality. At the expected, at the point estimate effect size, it seems to make sense, okay? Mm -hmm. So what that means is that your loss function looks pretty good at that effect size, mm -hmm. okay? Now... But that doesn't tell you much about the distribution of possible outcomes, right? So how do you get the distribution of possible outcomes? What you do is look at the probability distribution of the effect size after you incorporate all your modeling and data into it. Now, that's called the posterior distribution. <laughs> Once we've incorporated our modeling and data into everything, we get this posterior distribution, and we want to convolve that in some sense. So look at that at each point in the distribution, multiply that by the loss function or the cost and figure out then what the, the integral of all that is essentially. So mm -hmm. for those who don't know a lot of calculus, essentially what we're doing there is at each point we're multiplying them and adding it all together to essentially get the average, right, of the estimate weighted, instead of just looking at the average of the estimate, we're weighting it by all the possible effect sizes in order to make a decision. And I'll link to, well, I have given the episode of the podcast in the YouTube chat. I'll link to it in the show notes for those listening to the podcast itself. But I think this is a nice way to start thinking about decision-making under uncertainty. But I do think it, this would be a nice point to um, speak to Mike Smith's question, because we are talking about making decisions. We're talking about decision-makers who may not be technical or computational. Mm -hmm. uh, Mike asked, how do you communicate model outcomes and predictions to decision-making? And then Mike says, because the danger is that they will hear, computer says no. Right. So let me tell you just like hand-wavy how a lot of professional risk-taking organizations think about this. Now, what I'm not going to do, and we'll get a lot of comments in the podcast and people will crap at me on Twitter or whatever. I'm not going to do that anyway, man. Exactly. That's what I'm there for. And <laughs> but this is going to have some holes in some of this. But conceptually, let's start with this as a simplified framework, knowing that it's a, a limited framework. So what a lot of risk taking organizations do in order, well, first of all, if we have a financial organization where the outcomes are financial, the integration over the posterior with the loss function becomes easy. And the reason it's easy is they're just numbers. We don't have to do something like turn suckiness of life experience into a metric, right? We just have negative $100 million. It's really easy, right? So this is much easier in a financial trading shop. So I'm going to kind of use that example. So we take the losses and then you have the probability distribution and you can get a probability distribution of losses. So when we integrate our posterior distribution with our loss function, we get a posterior distribution that is in not in dollars. And we can say, okay, we have a 5% chance of losing $100 million. We have a 20% chance of losing $10 million. 
we have a 30% chance of, you know, and we can do the whole distribution, right? I need mm. not go through the full example. And we have some mean expected return. That's the average. Well, the in the world of finance, they do a thing called risk-adjusted return on capital. Rayrock. It's even got a catchy name. And what we can basically do there is say, okay, well, take your loss at some point in the bad tail. So in your organization could say, okay, let's take the one in 20, the 95th percentile. And we're just going to like get a ratio when we... We decide what that potential loss is divided by the expected profit. And there we have a measure of our mean relative to a static point in the tail. And we can compare two deals. One's with a higher mean and a higher loss in the tail. The other one's a lower mean, but a lower loss in the tail. Well, how do those compare? That ratio between that mean expected profit and the loss out in the tail can begin to help you triangulate on how to think about those two deals relative to each other because we're trying to compare the expected to some downside risk, right? This operation is like covered in undergrad textbooks, right? Mm -hmm. In finance, great place to start, right? And then you can do interesting stuff like say, oh, what's our return on risk adjusted return on capital for all of our positions, that's our main portfolio, we've got a new deal we want to do. Oh, economists are all fetishized the margin, right? Making decisions on the margin. Well, we can say, what's the return on capital of this portfolio by itself? And then we can take this deal, put it in there and say, what's the risk-adjusted return on capital after adding that deal in? Ta-da, marginal risk-adjusted return on capital for a single deal, marginal Ray Rock. And that will give you some, then you have some potential set of deals you might put in that portfolio. Well, you can calculate the marginal Ray Rock uh, for those to understand how they might fit in that deal, right? And so that's one way, if you're in financial land, you can, if you turn everything into dollar losses, you figure out which point in your tail is interesting to you. There's a big set of assumptions, right? I'm hand waving by which point do you put that sort of thing. But you can compare your expected to some point in the tail and have some sophistication when you think about adding things to your portfolio or adding risk to the portfolio. Yeah. And of course, in the financial world, there's an obvious metric to use. And part of the challenge is figuring out like what the cost function actually is for any of the work and decisions we're making. Wow, what a cliffhanger. This is exactly where we'll pick up in the next episode of Vanishing Gradients. Tune in to hear more about making decisions under uncertainty and how this applies to the worlds of data science, machine learning, business, insurance, and reinsurance. That's right. This will include how data science can be more tightly coupled with the decision function in organizations, some common mistakes and failure modes of making decisions under uncertainty, heuristics for principled decision-making in data science, and the intersection of model building, storytelling, and cognitive biases to keep in mind. Look forward to seeing you there. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. And thanks for sticking around to the end of the episode. I would honestly love to hear from you about what resonates with you in the show, what doesn't, and anybody you'd like to hear me speak with, along with topics you'd like to hear more about. The best way to let me know currently is on Twitter, at Vanishing Data is the podcast handle, and I'm at Hugo Bound. See you in the next episode.